Okay, well, welcome. Um, as Jay has said, it isn't uh, that I didn't like uh, the book of Judges. I liked it uh, a lot. I do find even the dark places in Scripture, they often help uh, in a lot of surprising ways. And, uh, but they also help us to appreciate uh, books like Ruth, uh, which happened in the time of the Judges and frankly has been hugely refreshing as I've gotten to kind of soak in that a bit. Uh, after many, many weeks in Judges. Uh, so I hope you'll find it the same, and, and it really does fit well with where we're at uh, in our own country. I think we've got a uh, country that's going some of the same ways that Israel was during the time of the Judges. Uh, it's kind of like a dark uh, background to a diamond, if, uh, if any of you ever purchased a diamond, perhaps an engagement ring. Uh, they like to take the black felt and put the pretty diamond on it so that it really stands out. And that's a bit like uh, I would see the book of Ruth against the background of the judges. I've got on your sheet, there's a story of personal faithfulness in the setting of national decadence. Uh, and not just Ruth, uh, Boaz, I would argue even Naomi, who... Uh, sometimes is looked down on, but I'm, I'm going to argue to uh, maybe be a little gracious with her given the place she was in. Uh, and then God graciously preserving a godly remnant, so seeing his hand in that. And it's always interesting to me how sometimes the sermons that we hear really parallel well, because we're going to talk about hopefully appropriately seeing Christ uh, in the Old Testament and in Ruth. And if you've already been to the first service, Chris talked about that a bit of uh, being careful that we don't get so symbolic that, that we're working a little too hard to bring all kinds of things out. And yet, um, there's biblical warrant to see some and to be able to uh, just see foreshadowing of what God would do through Christ. All right, so the time of the judges... So that was between the time of Joshua coming to the end of his uh, leading the people into conquest and taking the land that God had given them. Uh, and then this long stretch between that and King Saul, the first king. And you will surely remember the, the repeated saying of uh, the time of the judges being the time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel, including not really following uh, God as king. And so that was roughly the 1300s to 1063 BC is when that's thought to have happened. Um, it was most likely, the book of Ruth was most likely written down uh, sometime around the time of David because it mentions him, but it doesn't mention Solomon or going on from there. Uh, some people think it might have been uh, the prophet Samuel, maybe, we just don't know, but that's a, that's a possible. And it covers about, uh, the book of Ruth covers about 11 or 12 years, and, and really the first 10 are just very quick, where it says that Naomi and the two daughters were in Moab for 10 years. <clears throat> and then the rest of the book is about a year or two. You've got uh, several months from mid-April to mid-June. So barley harvest, we think of, oh, it was September, October. That's actually what I thought. But it is not. Uh, it, the barley harvest is actually April to June in Israel. Uh, and then there's one day in Bethlehem and one night at the threshing floor that is talked about in some detail. And then finally about a year in Bethlehem at the end. So pretty, pretty short time that gets this attention. And then um, Ruth is a wonderful human love story, and that's certainly true. Uh, we're going to see it's a lot more than that, but it is at least that. Um, there's some kind of interesting stories. Um, more people than him did this, but Benjamin Franklin, uh, when he was the ambassador to France, 
he liked to attend the Infidels Club, not a great name or a place he'd necessarily want to hang out a lot, but he would go there and he was not a believer. Uh, they sp- spent most of their time searching for and reading literary pieces and seeing if they could find masterpieces. <clears throat> so on one occasion, Franklin read um, the book of Ruth, but he changed the names to just disguise it a little bit. And uh, after he read it, uh, many of them said it was one of the most beautiful short stories they had ever heard and demanded that he tell them where he had run across such a remarkable work of art. Uh, And he took great delight in letting them know that this was from the Bible, the book that they despised. So there you go. The book of Ruth was at least uh, recognized as a beautiful and uh, poignant love story. So, but far more than that, it signifies and foreshadows the love story of Christ for his people. It gives us an example of godly living in the midst of a, a decadent time. Uh, The theologian B.B. Warfield said, the Old Testament is like a richly furnished but dimly lit room. Only when the light is turned on in the person and work of Christ do the contents become clear. And again, we we want to take carefulness in how we do that, but uh, I think there is truth to that. Um, The book of Hebrews helps us understand the book of Leviticus, the prophets, are brought to life by the Gospels. And Ruth is more fully understood in the light of the coming of Jesus as the ultimate kinsman redeemer, something we'll look at a fair bit as we go along. Uh, Jesus is a greater friend than even Ruth was to Naomi and a greater redeemer than even Boaz was to both of these women. And then I've got there, we have biblical warrant for seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, again, appropriately, including in Ruth. And so I want to take some time, and if you would kind of flip to these uh, passages, because I want to, I I just think, you know, as Chris has said, it is important that we appropriately see how does the, how does the Old Testament work for us as believers? Uh, How does the New Testament uh, help us to understand a bit more fully the Old Testament. So John, and some of these, again, flip to them, or you can at least just tune into them. John 5, 39, Jesus says uh, to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. So... Christ saying that they testified of him, and then skipping down a few verses to verse 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. And I'm going to ask you to uh, think, Uh, can you think of any places, so basically the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, um, we believe that was uh, under the direction of the Holy Spirit written by Moses. So it says here that Jesus says he wrote about me. Can you think of any places where uh, those books wrote about, where Moses wrote about Jesus? I'll give you a minute to ponder. What's that? Okay, so why would you say that was speaking of Jesus? Very good. Okay. And by the way, that is always the most sure place to find Old Testament referring to New Testament when the New Testament says so. So, uh, all right, Josh. It's a similarly unfair example. It's up in the wilderness. Thank you very much. Uh, so Chris mentioned that in the first service in Numbers 21 and again John 3. Um, I think it's 14 or 15, just before 16, where it says, just as uh, the snake was raised up in the wilderness, so will the Son of Man, Jesus, be raised up. So yes, that's one. one. When uh, Moses struck the rock, the water came out okay. to provide a drink. Okay. All said that rock was Christ. Thank you. Okay. Uh, all right. At the seat of the woman. 
Yes, okay, so that was in Genesis 3, 15-ish. Um, yes, so uh, he will, talking about the serpent striking the heel and the heel trotting on the serpent, and then later in the New Testament, that's uh, assigned to Jesus, okay? Anything else come to mind? Yep. Abraham and Isaac, uh, Abraham offering a Isaac to God for Great, yes. Okay, so that is a foreshadowing of what God would do in Christ. Okay, any others come to mind? Yep. I don't know if this is controversial, but I, I remember hearing a, a study on Melchizedek in the Old mm -hmm. Testament being sort of a free, uh, I don't know what the terminology is, but uh, a type of Christ. Yeah, yeah, a pre-incarnate Christ. So, um, yeah, certainly Hebrews refers to that, and people argue whether that was literally um, Christ or whether that was very much a foreshadowing of Christ. Either way, it at least is pointing to Christ. Okay. Good. Anything else? Yep. And, okay. Yeah. And then going to John 1. All right. Yeah. So there's a number that are pretty specifically laid out. Any. Others, that's a pretty good list. Let me see if I had any particular other ones. Uh, you know, in terms of the gospel also, uh, when it refers to Abraham, uh, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed in you. Uh, it'll be like the stars and so on. And, and goes beyond just the ethnic people, but to those who will believe by faith. Uh, let's see, uh, Genesis 49.10, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh, and that's usually thought of as being uh, translated him to whom it belongs or the man of peace. And over centuries, even the Jews had seen that as a messianic uh, prophecy. Uh, Deuteronomy 18, 15, where Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Uh, and then again, verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among your brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command you. And then maybe just turn to... Um, Let's look at a couple New Testament passages that then refer back. So Acts 3.18 says, What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So he says he foretold it by the mouth of the prophets. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brother. So he, he quotes that Deuteronomy 18 passage that we just talked about. Uh, and then still in Acts 8 verse 30, uh, this is where Philip uh, hears or sees um, the eunuch in the chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. So he's reading out loud. And he says, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he does not open his mouth, and, and so on. So he's in Isaiah 53 there, speaking about Jesus. Um, and then he asks Philip, please tell me of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. So there... There is, I mean, there are passages like that, and we're going to look at a couple more, that, that really do lay out these people could preach Jesus from the Old Testament. Um, 
and certainly a passage like Isaiah 53 would have been uh, pivotal. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.14, you, however, this is Paul talking to Timothy, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, and again, that would have been the Old Testament, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Second uh, Peter 1.19, we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. A couple more, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So again, Paul saying that the gospel was promised beforehand through his prophets. So, so just like we don't want to over become you know, very symbolical about everything. We also don't want to miss the fact that, that it is a progressive revelation where uh, we are given much uh, about the gospel and about the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. Uh, and just a couple more, Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, this is Jesus, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures, I've often thought I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall and heard Jesus telling the disciples about uh, explaining to them everything concerning himself in the scriptures. Uh, and then finally, Luke 24, 44, he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Um, so there is much that's legitimately there and that we can see even pointed to in the New Testament, which is again the, the safest place to be when we think something is uh, in the Old Testament pointing towards Christ. Uh, so I do think seeing at least a foreshadowing of uh, and, and again, I hadn't heard that about N.T. Wright that he literally doesn't think many of the things happened in the Old Testament, they, they were just written as examples, uh, that would be a sad place to go with this. You, definitely the, the Old Testament uh, was ordained those things that happened for that very purpose, that they could uh, not only God's dealings with um, Israel could be fleshed out, but also pointing toward the Messiah. Okay, some themes, and I'm not gonna, we're not going to expand on them. I'm mostly just going to mention them uh, in the book of Ruth. So we're going to see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. I think we just pretty much never don't see that in, in God's working, but it is really powerful here where you see God sovereignly working, but you also see people like Naomi and Ruth and Boaz doing some very definite works and taking responsibility and doing things um, in the midst of that. And again, I think they just beautifully work together. Um, godliness in dark places, that's definitely the whole, it, I think it helps if you sat through judges to know just how dark this place was. So like when, uh, when Boaz says to Ruth, you know, stay around my young men, don't go to another field lest you be assaulted. That, that was no small thing in this place where we've read horrific things went on in the book of Judges. So to have somebody that was godly and righteous, uh, you know, let alone the thing when Naomi says, oh, go lie by his feet at night and he'll tell you what to do. I mean, normally that'd be a terrible thing to tell a young woman to do but uh, trusting that this really was a, a godly man. And again, uh, even in that place where you know, he could have been very tempted to do some very inappropriate things she could do, um, but that didn't happen. And so seeing 
that kind of godliness, both in the big picture of dark things and even in little one-on-one -on -one events, how uh, it's just so refreshing to see that kind of faithfulness and righteousness going on. Um, loyalty. Uh, I mean, we're going to hit that right off in Ruth chapter 1 with her loyalty to Naomi, to her people, to her God uh, is stunning. And, and Boaz, uh, his faithfulness to these women and to his family as well. Um, humility, I mean, it's just striking, uh, this Ruth in particular, her humility in the midst of this, not like, why have I gotten stuck with this old woman that I've followed and, and you know, come to this place and doesn't look like she has any, any substance that's going to help. I mean, there's just so many ways that she could have demanded more, wanted more, been insulted that she didn't get more, and yet uh, just tremendous. And I feel like humility usually shows itself, uh, and I've got a couple more down, thankfulness. I don't think we're that thankful if we think, well, we deserve that. I mean, well, that's, a, that's the least we should have been given. But it's very much the opposite with her. She's, you know, who am I as your servant that you would have given me, that you would have paid any attention to me? Um, again, just a beautiful thing. Industry, or however you want to put that hard work. Uh, again, she didn't just sit around and wait for something to happen. She, Let me go out. Let me go work. Let me go see if we can uh, make something happen. And then the kinsman redeemer will certainly talk about. So let's, just gives you a little flavor of it, but let's go ahead and uh, dive in a bit to this first chapter. And you've got uh, on your sheet there a man-centered plan uh, a man of Bethlehem doing what was right in his own eyes. Unfortunately, it seems like, uh, we're not told a lot, but it seems like Elimelech was kind of doing what seemed right in his own eyes. Um, and then it talks about, um, let's see, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons in the days when the judges ruled. So, and again, this, this idea of the judges ruling, there's a verse in First Chronicles 12 that says, the sons of Isaac had an understanding of the, to the times to know what Israel ought to do. And it seemed like Elimelech, he knew the circumstances he was in, that they were in a famine, that his family didn't have enough food. But I, I want to think about a little bit why he would have gone to Moab. So again, the, in the days when the judges ruled, as we've said, it's the time between Joshua's leadership and Saul. Uh, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was a time of increasing idolatry, talked about this syncretism taking the false and the true and kind of smushing them together and making some kind of a uh, really a mess of um, their religious beliefs. And as we, those who were uh, in judges or, or just have read it on your own, a time of unspeakable immorality. And we, we kind of walk through that when our view of God and what he ordains is twisted then eventually uh, that shows itself in immoral behavior. All right, and then I guess you've got, we don't have a whole lot of blanks this time, so a famine in the house of bread, and then desperate times can tempt us to make bad decisions. Uh, it's often when there's pressure on us. Uh, so he went to sojourn in the country of Moab, And so I want to just go back a little bit to, uh, I mean, why would that be such a bad idea? I mean, again, if you think of it in our times, so if your uh, husband, 
wife as well are you know making these decisions about what are we going to do with our family you know i lost my job we're not getting paid very well maybe we'll go here you know how we make those decisions and it seemed like a limelech i mean again it's appropriate to say how do we figure out how to get food and how do we get and and i do think you always want to have a little bit of sympathy for these things where we weren't in that position you know, if I'm starving, that usually means lunch is about a half hour late. I mean, that's, that's the American idea of I'm starving to death. So when you've got people who really are not having enough food, don't know, and I think it's particularly when you see your family uh, doesn't have enough, that's, that's a big deal, that's a weight. But unfortunately, it seems like, and we're having to read a little between the lines, but that Elimelech, uh, he saw that, but he didn't really think through, what is this place that we're going to move to like? Um, you know, I think trying to learn as we go through life that when you go to a place, you really think of more than just that. You know, is there a good church there? Are there people uh, who are going to encourage us in the faith? That doesn't mean you have to go to a place that has no unbelievers. There, there are probably exceedingly few places like that, if any. So... But you still look at the big picture of how is this going to affect uh, me and my family and not be too arrogant that, well, you know, that stuff doesn't affect me and, and I, I don't really need people around me to encourage me. I can, I can just go live in the midst of, uh, like I can remember uh, in college days, somebody saying they were going to go to a, um, a very liberal seminary and, and help to change it. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so just being a bit careful about um, the things around us when it says bad morals corrupt good behavior, that's scriptural. That's, that's like realizing, okay, I'm not Jesus. I am a human and I need to look at uh, some of those biblical warnings. So who were the Moabites? The Moabites were a tribe descended from Moab, the son of Lot, born of an incestuous relationship. So uh, Genesis 19, the two daughters of Lot were worried that there's no men around. We're not going to have any children. We want children. Got their father drunk, had relations with him. And so that's where Moab came from. So not a great start. Um, during the Exodus, the Moabites were alarmed as Israel came near. So you remember the story of their king, uh, Balak, who hired Balaam, and that whole thing of he's trying to pay Balaam to curse the Israelites. And, you know, at first you think, well, maybe Balaam's going to be okay. I mean, he inquires of the Lord, and he says, you know, I can't curse him because God says to bless them. And so this keeps happening, and the king keeps bringing him to other places. Well, could you, could you curse him from up here? Could you curse him from over there? And that's just, it's not working out. And, of course, then you have the donkey that speaks to Balaam and, you know, basically says, why are you beating me? You're, you're the problem. And God is speaking through him and stopping Balaam. And, but we find out later uh, that it goes even farther than that, that even though he doesn't outright curse them in that place, that the Moabite women uh, draw the Israelites into idolatry. So Balaam still uh, works uh, some evil toward them. So, for example, Numbers 25.1 says, While Israel re remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Uh, and then uh, in, uh, actually in Revelations 2.14, um, God says, I, I have a few things against you, because speaking to this church, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So again, you've got this idolatry and immorality repeatedly laid out. Um, 
and even uh, referred to in, in Revelation. So, uh, and then in Deuteronomy 23, God even specifically curses the Moabites by name. Uh, he says, Deuteronomy 23.3, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. And then finally, in the book of Judges, they're, they're repeatedly mentioned uh, as the enemy of Israel. Uh, just one of them, Judges 3.12, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, and then verse 14, the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. And, and that keeps repeating. They keep coming back and fighting against Israel. So it's probably kind of obvious, but, um, but in light of that, what, what would be some specific reasons why this was a bad idea for uh, Elimelech to think this is a good solution for getting my family fed. Uh, yeah. Uh, God was disciplining them through the, through the fam famine, right? So them leaving God's discipline is not a good idea. That's possible. Um, he certainly was working with it. I don't think that means you can't try to solve it, but I think that was we can at least say this wasn't a good solution. So any other reasons why Moab was not a good solution? Yeah. Uh, we'll not skip ahead, but it appears to be a, a dangerous place. I mean, both the son in laws and the one like himself. Right, yeah. yeah. We're not told how, but somehow, yeah. Okay, so, and I've already said, so I'll give you the first uh, place of idolatry and immorality. Can you think of any other, so I mean, it's, it's just, a, they're told not to encourage this place. It's a terrible place to live, but there's even some other reasons. Correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't their god Moloch? Mm -hmm. They burned kids in fire and that type of stuff. Yeah, and I think so, Chemosh was another, Chemosh? yeah, okay. yeah. But still, probably something Elimelech knew about anyway from their prior history. Did they give the oral traditions passed down like that? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so they're going to get plenty of false teaching. Okay, anything else? Yep. I think going to Moab showed a lack of faith on God's provision for them. Yeah, good. Okay, yeah, and Moab, just so you picture it, since I'm terrible with AB, but all right, so here's Bethlehem. They had to go up over the Dead Sea, over to the Jordan, and over to the other side where you have. Moab, so they did that journey. Um, yep, more? Sort of take a different take on this. Uh, mm -hmm. The fact that uh, this story is no different than what, uh, as far as the Israelites going from Canaan to Egypt to, uh, to avoid the famine. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the decision process, with it, as far as Hemelech is concerned, was very similar. But you have to look at the whole the whole story and the fact. What is this about? What is the outcome of it? Uh, and this is very much the sovereignty of God having this family go to uh, mm -hmm. to Moab for the reasons stated. And uh, what is what is the result of that? And it, it ends up bringing the whole thing is bringing Ruth back into uh, uh, into Judah. Mm -hmm. uh, to become part of the line uh, of Christ. Good. So, and we're actually going to specifically hit that in a few verses. So, good uh, lead into that. Um, 
So a couple more things uh, on your sheet there. Uh, there are no relatives outside his immediate family. And again, these are sort of just practical things, but I do think of them at this stage of, uh, of our life, not only scripture, but how that applies in some way. Um, no faithful friends, brothers, and sisters in the faith. I do find that, yeah, when we, when we move places, when we go places, if at all possible, I mean, even when the disciples are uh, sent out two by two, I mean, Lone Ranger Christianity is rarely a great thing. I mean, once in a while, God puts us sovereignly in a place where there's no choice. But I think when we have the choice to be among uh, God's people, and again, being uh, in the world, but not of the world. So we're still supposed to be in the world. We're still supposed to, uh, I think, be around unbelievers and so on. But, but just realizing that we need support. And uh, how many places, uh, I got a little note two days ago from somebody. It was just a huge encouragement. It was just at the right moment where I could kind of use a little encouragement. And, um, it's just a reminder how many times we need to lift each other up. And when we go to a place where we're just not gonna have any of that around us, that's a tough place to be. Um, and then the last thing I have there, but it practically seemed attractive. So it, it probably seemed like, hey, there's a great opportunity there. We can get, we can get all the food we want. Uh, and so he was willing to look past a lot of those other things. And, and just to read one more passage, and there's many of them in the Old Testament, but Joshua 23 said, Be very careful to love the Lord your God, for if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And so, and there's lots of those kind of warnings in scripture about being careful, the positions we put ourselves in, that we are fallible human beings who need support and help. Uh, and again, that's why the body of Christ is the body of Christ, uh, is to have those kind of helps. All right, so then let's look at names a little bit. Uh, again, I don't want to get too, it's not always going to be the thing that defines everything, but it, they're interesting in the book of Ruth. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi, the names of uh, his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Uh, Sounds like Star Trek Klingons, but uh, uh, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So Elimelech meant my God is king. And, and again, it seems like from the little we know of him, he wasn't doing a, a fabulous job at, at being careful to follow uh, God's uh, instructions. Naomi means pleasant, and of course we're going to see she changes that name to some degree. Um, Malon means sickness, and Kilion means wasting. So if you thought, maybe that's a cool name for my kids. <laughs> Probably not. Uh, Orpah, Neck, or Fawn, and apparently that was sort of a sensual name. And Ruth, compassionate or loyal friend. Uh, so Ruth you can definitely pick as a good name. Um, all right, so then verse 3, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. These, these took Moabite wives. The names of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth, and they lived there about 10 years. And both Malon and Kilion died. So the, women, uh, so the woman was left without her sons and her husband. So... Yeah, first of all, I've got there that the most likely thing to happen is what happened, and that means they married Moabite wives. Uh, again, uh, moving ahead in the story, Ruth is amazing. Um, and again, I, I want to talk about that in a minute. So, you know, what do we make of all that? But 
nevertheless, there's this commands, even the one I read from uh, a minute ago uh, about not uh, marrying wives from these other countries. I mean, that was supposed to be forbidden, but when you go live in a place, you've got a pretty good chance that um, your young people are more likely to marry there. So it was kind of a setup for problems. Now, again, we're not told how all these men died, but, um, but I've got there that question. God brought about much good from this. So does that mean uh, they're off the hook for making the choice they made and that, that that proves that that was a good choice? Or how do you look at that? I mean, because again, you gotta have, Ruth is, is gonna be in the line of David and um, turns out to be, at one point they say to uh, Naomi, your daughter-in-law who is better than seven sons. So it, it certainly has a happy ending and it, it kind of fits very nicely with um, once upon a time and they all lived ha happily ever after. We like those kind of stories. But what does that say about, how do you look at the decision to go live in Moab based on that? God is sorry, he's gonna bless you in spite of your foolishness. Yes, yeah. That is a really important thing to remember. The, the outcome of something does not justify the decision that came to it. The fact that Judas decided to betray Christ and the fact that he died for the sins of all of his people does not mean that what, Judah, or what uh, Judas decided to do was okay because it was the sovereignty of God and it, it had to happen that way. You, we can't conflate those two things. There's, that's why we keep saying over and over there's the sovereignty of God and thankfully he makes amazing things out of junk. I mean, he will take sin and still turn it around and make it into good. He'll take Satan's uh, attempts, uh, like in the book of Job, and he will somehow turn that into this amazing story, painful though it was. Um, so it never justifies. You can never say, well, because this came out well, you know, yes, that is true. It's the sovereignty of God. So you want to put emphasis there. But you never want to change how you look at, you know, to make that justify the decision. Again, Judas being the most obvious one, but uh, lots of ones we've gone over in Acts before about Christ being killed by the hands of sinful men, but yet God used that for redemption. So I would say that about this, that, that God uh, sovereignty, sovereignly worked in the midst of all this, uh, but I don't think that changes that we're still to be a part of the story in the way we can in trying to be faithful and trying to do the right things. Any other thoughts on that? The ends justify the means is an absurdly dangerous mindset. Thank Maybe you. Maybe even more so when you aren't even aiming for the ends in question. Yes. Um, and I'll add, I told you, you guys a, a little bit ago, and I'm still mired in it, the book by uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, The Gulag Archipelago. I can't get out of it yet, but it's so these terrible Russian prison places uh, and concentration camps, and he goes through them, and he says one of the temptations even, and he hasn't become a Christian yet in this book, but he says... Um, that it's a different thing to say, I want to be out of here and I'm holding hope that I can get out of here. And to, that's one thing and that's okay. But if you go to the point of saying, I want to get out of here at whatever it costs. Because he said, what that really means is whatever it costs other people, whatever I have to do to other people, however I have to betray them, whatever it takes, as soon as you say that's the end, and, and that was a very big thing in the Russian uh, socialist machine was um, the end is what matters and it was that very thing so it's just another way of saying the same thing anything else okay so um, all right so verse 5 um, is where the two sons have died 
So you've got all visible means of support gone. Um, men were usually the ones that would bring in uh, much of the um, funds and food and so on. Uh, she's in a foreign land. Again, no blood relatives. She has these two daughter-in-laws. Um, her faith is likely being diluted and undermined and very little to build her up, at least as far as we can see. God obviously can work directly with her, so you don't want to leave that out, but she's in a tough place. So after 10 years, the other interesting thing is, particularly in light of Ruth, is going to have children with Boaz in the future, but after 10 years, both of her daughter-in-laws are barren, so there, there have been no grandchildren either to help uh, in any way. So it is kind of a nightmare. So again, when, you, when we look at Naomi, trying to put yourself, in, and we don't know if, if she, you know, very, very probably kind of faithfully followed her husband who seemingly has made a, a, a bad decision. I mean, he's taken her and, and uh, the family to this place of, uh, that God had given a lot of specific commands about and to not support the peace of these people, and yet you're going to go live among them. And so she's gone along and all this disaster has happened. So, so when she says later on, don't call me pleasant anymore, call me bitter. I'm an old, bitter woman, and so just call me that. Um, you can see, uh, I think, a little sympathy toward her in that. Uh, so, verse 6, then she arose with her daughter-in-laws uh, to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab uh, that the Lord, and that's that word Yahweh, Yahweh, sorry, had visited his people and given them food. So, uses the proper name of the God of Israel and She's very good, by the way. Naomi is very good at the sovereignty of God. Uh, she sometimes, and, and even I would say, being pretty careful not to accuse him. She just says kind of the obvious, his hand's gone against me. That's, that's how it feels to her. Um, but she definitely, she doesn't say, well, you know, life, life has done this, not God. Or, you know, God couldn't help it. He was... You know, he was too weak or he was doing other things or, you know, whatever ways, and we might word it more flowery, but, but these different ways of sort of taking, getting God off the hook for what's happened in our life, she pretty much looks at it uh, head on. So, and the other thing is that she... Um, well, verse 7, she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And so she does have some faith. I've got their faith and doubt, and it does seem to be a mix. She at least has enough, maybe just desperation, but at least some little bit of faith to say, okay, God's done this for his people. I want to go be a part of that. I want to... Uh, I want to get bread, I want to survive, I want to, and was willing to at least start out with both of her daughters. Somewhere along the line, it, it, I don't know if she was just thinking through, how's this going to go? I'm bringing these two Moabites. The Israelites don't like Moabites. I don't really have any visible means of support either for myself, let alone them. Um, and so then they, we get into this dialogue, um, and actually verse... Uh, 10, I call it Naomi's reverse evangelism, basically. Don't come. Go back to your gods uh, and the other people. Uh, but again, she has a recognition of God's sovereignty. But to know, that's jumping ahead a little bit. So as destitute as she is, she at least starts out in faith. And then verse 8, Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So initially, you got a pretty similar response of Naomi 
uh, well, of Ruth and Orpah to Naomi. Um, and this word hath said is used. So when it says, uh, may the Lord deal kindly with you, that word for kindly is that word hath said, which is, it really is that idea of covenant kindness or covenant faithfulness. And, and I, would, I would say you, could, you can think of it as an extremely loyal love that's lived out in action. So it's not just, it's, it's the very opposite of just good intentions. Like when God has, has said love toward his people, something's going to happen on the basis of that. Something's gonna, promises are going to be kept. Uh, things are going to be carried out that live that out. And so it's used three times uh, in the book of Ruth. So... The one is the one we just read, the Lord deal kindly. So talking about the, the Lord's has said. And then R Ruth 2.20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, blessed uh, is he of the Lord. This is when um, Ruth has come back, again, jumping ahead a little bit. And Boaz has treated her very well. And so Naomi says, blessed be he, Boaz, of the Lord, who has not forsaken his has said his kindness to the living and the dead. Again, he has this, this faithfulness, this loyal love for his family and for this uh, woman at a certain level already. Um, and he did something about it. So again, it's that living out of this loyal love that is has said. It's really a spectacular word. Uh, it's used about 200 times in the Old Testament. And then finally, Ruth 3, verse 10. Um, so you've got God uh, expressing said. You've got Boaz, and then you're going to have Ruth. So Boaz says, and this is after Ruth comes to him and, and basically proposes, uh, I would argue, marriage. Um, he says, blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more has said, more kindness at the end than at the beginning, and that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. So again, she's, she's taken action based on loyal love. That uh, It's an expression of that. So again, just a, just a beautiful, powerful word. If, if you ever sometime want to have a great study, look at it in all the ways it's used in the... Uh, Old Testament. All right, and then verse uh, 10. So again, Orpah and Ruth, initially, they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. So they, they're kind of on the same track. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughter. So she's really just pushing them. Uh, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So again, you've got this reverse evangelism. She's making an apologetic why you should not come with me. You should go back. Um, and, you know, as it goes along, we're going to see she even says to your, uh, that she knows this means going back to their gods as well. Um, at the same time, she once again sees God's hand uh, behind all this and is specifically going out against her. Um, she recognizes that sovereignty and it, it seems like in light of that she doesn't want her daughter -in -law, daughters in law to uh, be attached to her or dependent on her or to share in all this um, difficult providence that God is bringing on her. And she does seem to be trying to think of their welfare. She does seem to. And, and as, that, as her character bears out, even though she's got some hard edges, she does seem to care 
uh, about, certainly Ruth, she thinks a lot about how to uh, take care of her and help her. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And, it, and again, it's as we see it bear out, the idea is Orpah kissed her goodbye. Um, but Ruth clung to her. And, and I would say, I mean, this is the huge turning point. I mean, you look at these two women who up till now, they're both spoken of well. You, you know, Naomi says, you treated me well. You've treated those who are now dead well. You know, no complaints. Uh, they both weep when, when she says, you guys should go back. They, they both say, no, we're going to stay with you. But it, it hits this sort of dividing line where Orpah finally goes, okay. And, uh, and, and she's, and it, and it probably isn't a shrug even. I mean, it probably is a genuinely sad moment, but she, she does leave and Ruth clings uh, to Naomi. And it's that word for cling is the same one in Genesis 2.24 where it says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife. So that idea of loyalty and affection and commitment uh, I mean, nowadays we'd say Ruth was all in. I mean, she was not going to leave under any circumstances where Orpah could be persuaded. And I, I think a little bit of um, uh, like the parable of the, the soils and the, the different ones, that it's only the one that, that uh, was rooted and stayed and, and couldn't be either choked out or pulled out or dried out. Um, but was going to hold fast. Um, and then verse 15, Naomi says to Ruth, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So, you know, those are those parts of Naomi that we don't really want to uh, fully follow. Uh, to be saying, go back, you know, to actually tell somebody to go back to your own people and your own gods. But uh, only Orpah followed that. And this is when uh, you have the famous passage, which is a beautiful and spectacular passage. There's a reason that it's well known. It's applied mostly at weddings, and obviously this is a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law, I, you know, I, I wouldn't be too hard on the weddings because it, it's, it's still a beautiful expression of loyal love. And this idea that um, I'm going to stick with you no matter what. So Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and where, there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So you've got this amazing, spectacular, beautiful, loyal love going on here. And I think uh, that's a good one to follow, actually, in your marriages. So I, I wouldn't disown it just because it happens to be a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. I mean, don't lose the context, but uh, it's still a spectacular expression that, uh, that we would do well to uh, think about and, and apply every day. Um, so again, you, you've got this difference where, and you think of, we don't know what happened to Orpah, we just know she went back to her people. And you see what happened to Ruth. And it was based on, you know, it, it almost seems like, Orpah, you were so close. You were, you were trying to hold on a little bit, but in the end, didn't. Just, you know, moved on, moved back uh, to her God. Um, and I think we will have to call it there. We're almost to the end, but I do want to have us soak in this a little bit more because, again, it's a... Uh, a beautiful place and just to begin to think about so you've got these three women that are all going somewhere um, and they're all in a very different place uh, spiritually emotionally and so yeah I want to you can start thinking about that a little bit more but 
Uh, and again, including Naomi and where, where things are going to go for her. Because I would argue that even though her emotions and her, some bitterness there that she's owning uh, are real, she still manages to invest trust. She invests trust in God. She goes toward him, not away from him. And I think there are times when we're in that place where we feel some sort of bitterness, some sort of things have not gone how I would like them to go. And I just kind of want to encourage you that keep, just take another step. Just keep stepping toward the Lord. Uh, invest that trust in those times where you feel like a Naomi bitter. Uh, but again, she moved forward where Orpah, with all her emotions and so on, sadly moved away from God and the difference that made in the long run. Because uh, not only Ruth and Boaz, but Naomi is going to have uh, a happy ending. And life in this world doesn't always go even like it did for them. Uh, that's not the promise, but uh, still to see how God worked in their lives and that it was partly caught up in the direction they invested and moved uh, despite their feelings. So let me just close this in prayer. Father, again, we, we thank you for these very real uh, stories and passages and accounts of uh, your work in these lives and uh, the very human emotions and temptations and struggles that went with it. Uh, Father, we thank you that you deal with us in our emotions, our angsty times, our times of feeling uh, bitter or uh, unsupported or that you haven't acted in a way that we would have wanted. Uh, Father, help us to keep investing trust in you and stepping towards you and not away from you. And Father, we thank you that you are a good and gracious God, that you meet us, that you lift us, that you heal us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.